Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to be discussing, well, answering and discussing your questions about Walter Wengren's Juniors, the book of the Duncow. Not just Walter Wengren, Walter Wengren Juniors. I wonder what kind of books Walter Wengren Sr. wrote. I guess he was a Lutheran pastor, is what I read on huh. the Facebook page. I didn't so know that he, before. So maybe he wrote something. Well, we are here to discuss the book of the Duncow and to answer the questions that you posted. There's a great many of them. And so we're going to just dig right in. We have about an hour today. We have a kind of a hard stop today. So we're going to just have to get right to it and start with Kelly's question. What is the Duncow? She says, I definitely get the sense that she represents the paraclete to Chanticleer. And his response to her is extremely allegorical in its feeling. But I get that the book is not a one-to-one allegory. Why would the Holy Spirit or the effect of that presence be represented as a cow? Is there a medieval connection here that I'm missing? Now, Tim, I believe in the last episode, you also used the phrase, what is the dun cow? Mm-hmm. I think maybe those were the exact words. They might have been. So then naturally, it seems suiting, suitable, suitable, fitting, suiting to... Uh, to have you answered the question that you're asking. Do you, have you had any further thoughts on the phrase, what is the Duncow? I can completely see the Duncow as the Holy Spirit. There's something about the silence of the Duncow that makes me think of the Holy Spirit, if that makes sense. You know, the Holy Spirit groaning and interpreting our mm-hmm. words to God. Mm-hmm. Um, but we rarely, I mean, I think in the New Testament, like the vocal action of the Trinity is not through the Holy Spirit. It's through Jesus and God, the father. So I've always kind of associated like a silent efficaciousness to the Holy Spirit. And that really suits the dun cow. So I welcome that interpretation. Heidi, Heidi, do you, do you, do you have any welcome that interpretation? Of course I welcome that interpretation. I think that because it's not a one-to-one correlation in terms of the allegory, it's just allegorical, uh, then it gives us a lot more freedom then to interpret according to our own spiritual traditions or inclinations or whatever. And it's not a straight up Christian book either. And so even even people who aren't of the faith might find some comfort in the idea of the Duncow. In fact, the Duncow is a medieval legends about that's not Christian at all. It's a pagan legend about a, uh, a cow that is full of milk and then is appears to people who need to be nourished. And so you can take it as just that idea of spiritual uh, nourishment and comfort, or you can take it into a more spiritual other uh, level, which I think fits the story better. And then the dung cow might represent the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, as Kelly said, or a saint or the Virgin Mary, uh, just at any kind of uh, figure of supernatural or transcendent comfort that appears in a time of distress. That's the dun cow. So Kelly did mention that we had discussed this last week. She says, feel free to bypass this question. But I wanted to ask it because there was a secondary question in that thread where Amy says, related, do you think she is visible to anyone but Chanticleer? It seems like Mundo Kanian Pertolote. What did we decide? How do we decide to pronounce that? Pertolote? We, uh, we said Pertolote, was... but we can say whatever we want because Pertolote is what's in the audio book. And that is compelling right. to me. Evidence. So she says it seems like they thought he was hallucinating when he talked about her. So thoughts on, on that part? Heidi, in particular, the visibility to anyone with Chanticleer? I, I mean, it, there is another part of the story in which Chanticleer can see the Don Cow speaking to Pertolote and to Mundukani. And so right. uh, it's it's clearly real. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, Banquo's ghost versus Hamlet's father's ghost, right? In one of the stories, he's mm-hmm. visible to others and another is not. And that impacts the story. So I think um, the fluidity of that, uh, of the Duncow experience as part of the mystery of the story. Um, but I think that because it is the book of the Duncow, which by the way, is a real book, which I talked about on the first episode, um, a real literary artifact in the uh, Celtic tradition. Uh, but in this book, 
I think that it's significant that it's the titular character because the so much of the power and the gravitas of this story is in that spiritual in-between space, right? That's that Chanticleer goes through and that the other characters go through uh, this, this sense of, of the world and the story asking too much of them. And they're crying out for help from a supernatural being. And sometimes the dun cow is very comforting, but sometimes, sometimes the dun cow is either invisible or silent or, you know, that it's that kind of mysterious, um, transcendent reality that takes place in that existential darkness. Um, and, and that I think is where the main emotional power of the story comes from. And, and so it's significant that the dung cow appears there and different characters have a different experience with her, just as we all have different ex spiritual experiences with each other and sometimes feel like we're heard and answered by God or the spiritual realm. And sometimes we feel ignored or dismissed or slighted. And, and, and so that I think speaks to the power of the story and, and leaves it up to the reader's interpretation and our own kind of mirrors into our own souls. Should we talk about the beer question or should we? The what question? The, the beer question. What's the beer question? I guess we're going to talk about it. Read, read Charles, you know. Yeah. Close reads. Close power reads. Power user. <laughs> Close yeah, reads Facebook. Say power cover. user. That's, yeah. that's a great description of read. He, uh, he says if, Chant if Chanticleer were a beer, what kind would he be? And cockatrice. Would he be an O'Doul spiked with cheap vodka? Mm -hmm. He also says, yes, we have COVID. And yes, this is all my adult brain could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just and so then, fascinated that an O'Doul's, an alcohol-free beer, spiked with vodka sounds like this is a thing. People do this? Is that, I know. I had never even heard of I that. would not is have thought like so. Is this like COVID brain? Or is this like a or is real this an actual concoction? <laughs> yeah, I would love to... Like, Read, tell us on Facebook whether or not it's an actual thing that people do. Because it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Like, if you're going to drink... Yeah, I'm I mean, not O'Doul's doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Because it's not a great Especially beer. for the bad guy. Yeah, especially for the bad guy. I think Chanticleer is going to be like a really kind of inaccessible IPA that is... An inaccessible IPA or yes, an accessible IPA? No, inaccessible. Because IPAs are, admittedly, I don't know as much about beer as I do about wine, which I love, love, love. And beer, I like. Um, but <sighs> IPA, you have to like develop a taste for. People don't always like it right away. You, you got to kind of get so the palate hoppy. for it. Yeah, yeah you, have, then, you have to live in the Pacific Northwest. Not, Exactly. It's not an accessible beer. Lots of people don't love it, um, but it packs a lot of punch, right? And it's got more alcohol than the average beer. So it's more powerful and you have to develop a taste for it. But once you do develop a taste for it, then you're like, oh, the more, the hoppier, the better. I want it more and more bitter, right? So that's, that's, my, that's my two cents on Chanticleer as a beer. Well, what about as a wine then? Is Chanticleer like a... a Chateau du Pop or like uh, oh yeah some, definitely something from the Rhone Valley world. Or, yeah. yeah like not just Bordeaux but something like I even think yeah I even think Rhone Valley I think you gotta go even more gotta be a lot a lot going tewa. on more yeah yeah okay I think like the three people that are still like that know what you guys are talking about do not include this guy. Read? I don't or know. Any, yeah, I don't know enough about <laughs> wine to follow. Like, I don't even know okay, what that last word was beer. that Heidi said. Terroir. Ter 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 it's it's the it's like the the it's the earth that the grapes are grown in, basically. Oh, that's the terroir. That's like yeah. like terroir. the deal simplified yeah. description. Okay. Wine tastes like rocky. dirt. Good wine Sandy. tastes like dirt, and you that's want right. you want more dirt. So you have to develop a taste for the dirt. That's right. The more dirt, the better. And so Chanticleer is the sort of rooster you have to develop a taste for. I think so. Yeah. I think that's and right. it's not very accessible, right? You I think have that's to, right. You have to be committed. You have to spend the time. But then why is cockatrice just some an duel? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was spiked with vodka nonetheless. Maybe I it's mean, just because to like, add to that. Reed is just acknowledging that that's a bad <laughs> drink. Combo. Just like cockatrice is a bad rooster. So, okay, so let's do the beer then. Like, let's say it can't be a, 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 
an Odul spikes. That's my dog. Pardon me. Perfect timing. With vodka. What is cockatrice then? Cockatrice is, is, is the idea that he is, he, he, there's not a lot going on there. So it's just like, he's, Bud Light. he's simple to the point of banality. He's just evil. So he's like a PBR. Maybe so. I kind of want to defend PPR a little bit. I mean, actually like what you just said, simple to the point of banality. There's no, there's not a lot of complexity to cockatrice, is there? He's just wicked. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think some of like the other really dark characters that we, antagonists that we've read about on this show, or maybe in like the plays, the thing, I think Claudius is a really, complex dark mm-hmm. character in Hamlet but well and that's why Cockatrice is sort of just representative he's almost like a wraith hmm. in the Lord of the Rings where I mean there's a backstory there that we don't get with Cockatrice per se yeah but um, the ring wraiths I think are interesting they're I mean I guess I just mean they're fallen. like servants to a greater evil they're servants to a greater evil yeah okay yeah in that way yeah that's a really good comparison I guess that's right. the kind of all I mean by that yeah we don't right again Lord of the Rings much longer. We get more background into, I mean, and, and really Cockatrice is born out of, okay. I have a question actually. Backstory. Super creepy. So he's got to be a cocktail. Cockatrice has got to be a cocktail. Cockatrice is a cocktail. I love it. How you saw it in like, I know what it is. Now I have the answer. I'm gritting my teeth. I believe it's so hard. Dark cocktail made in a cauldron somewhere. Yeah. It's like smoking. Yeah. But, okay. okay but what were you going to say, David? I have a question about Cockatrice's, derivation so worm sends him is that right like into the into the world into the world yeah i think so yeah to pave the way he's like an inversion of john the baptist or something yeah 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 Yeah. right Mm -hmm. so then why does worm choose that particular rooster and what's the relationship between the rooster that cockatrice is born from and worm so you're gonna have to put this on the q a thread this is not just like some kind of free for all. Anybody gets to ask the question. So uh, actually, I'm really interested in this question. I would like to Wait, explore it. I'm going to have to like put this on there, yeah. like post can a question myself so someone can answer it. Put it on the Q&A thread and then okay. read it to us. Otherwise, oh. this is just like birthing a dark monster. And going all out of order. This is a medieval book. Okay, there fine. are rules to follow here. <laughs> okay, Jennifer has a question about Lord Russell. The fox. No, I want to go. No, actually, I was just kidding. I want to go back to that, and then I want to answer that question. Well, you did say there are rules. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, what's the answer then? Can you remind me of the question? I oh my gosh. <laughs> she was worrying about the rules and didn't actually care about the question. You know, the question was why did Worm choose that particular rooster? Oh, yeah. Like, Sex. and why send? Why did he send? This weird, like his cockatrice, why he's, why he's in cockatrice through Senex mm-hmm. to invade the world. I have an answer, but I, Tim hasn't talked for a while. No, 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 I just, Heidi, like, I hear your answer. up all of the air I, on this. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a good answer for this. I want to hear yours. Um, okay. So Senex, they, the chicken coop is the keeper of worm. So, and the way that the chicken coop unknowingly and unconsciously, the idea is that Chanticleer doesn't know that he is performing this service for the kingdom. He is unconsciously keeping down Worm and keeping him subterra under the earth until such a time as he can find a way to be released by unworthy keepers that are not keeping the hours. Right. So the coop is like the church. It, it, it keeps the darkness buried under the earth. And if they upset the order, if they become disordered, and if the leader particularly refuses to engage in this sacramental office, then Worm can has more opportunity to tempt the wicked or the unfaithful leaders away from their job and then he can find servants that will then invade and set him free um so senex you know so anyway he's like lurking under the ground waiting for something like this to happen and then senex does he gives up he abandons his responsibility he abdicates his role and his priestly and kingly role uh and then 
he he thus opens himself up to temptation from under the earth, you know, sum worm subterra. So that is, I think, the idea of how worm gets access through Senex and then to this like dark conception of this monstrous and disordered being, cockatrice, who then can create an army of basilisks in order to set their you know dark father free from under the earth. Got it. Yep. Sorry. I was speaking and was muted. Oh. What a blunder. Okay. So Christy, <laughs> she had a question. She says about Worm. She says, is anyone else getting a Dante vibe from Worm? I'm doing the 100 days of Dante. So Inferno has been on my mind lately. In Canto 34, Dante and Virgil go to the center of the earth, the last rung of hell. Satan is represented by a worm and he's continually chewing on the betrayers, the traitors. In Duncow, Mundo Kani is the only one who can defeat Worm. Only the faithful, loyal, humble dog can win the ultimate battle. So the question is, is anyone else getting a Dante vibe from Worm? And then she can she proceeded to then explain how we all should have a Dante vibe from Worm. Any comments on this? Well, we've made multiple references to this show about how this is kind of an overlay with a medieval cosmology. And if there has ever been a medieval cosmology laid out in crystal clear diagram, it's Dante's Divine Comedy. Diagram, yeah. So, I mean, in that way, absolutely. Um, I don't remember Satan being translated as a worm from Dante's Italian. Yeah, he's I, a dragon. Yeah, I don't remember a worm, so I might mm-hmm. quibble with that a little bit. Um, but that would be one way to make an illusion if you're Walter Wanger and Jr. without being, you know, right. too heavy-handed. Too heavy-handed. Kind of. yeah. Well, and I think it's also a reference to the Midgar dragon, right? The, the worm under the ground that chews on the the uh, roots of Yggdrasil, the world tree, and then will someday become free and cause Ragnarok, right? So it also has that kind of medieval legend tied into it. Um, there's something- Are you really talking creepy. about the MCU now? Well, I mean, I'm just saying that MCU has done some things right. And that- This is, this I, is about I think to become a Marvel podcast. actually worked pretty well. Um, I just, can I just, I need to point something out here for a second, Heidi. You're so deeply versed in kind of like the medieval world that you say things like, you know, and the Ragnarok chews on the world tree and, you know, and then it, and, and like you, you keep kind of like putting in the phrase, you know, as if we Everybody know. Knows. <laughs> Everybody knows this. This is general knowledge. This is not, I am not a nerd. People know this. Mm, we just like to tell ourselves things that we need to believe. Ragnarok, terroir. <laughs> you know, Ragnarok and Terrorock, you know, chewing on the world tree, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write MVP. a story one day and the characters going to be like named Ragnarok Terroir. That's going to be based on Heidi. <laughs> mine's mine's going to be, be called yep. Ragnarok, you know. <laughs> I like okay. that one. Well, so interesting point. Podcast, int- so I have somebody to say these things to. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, I don't right, know. Exactly. <laughs> right. I know. Well, I don't, yeah, exactly. So um, I, I, that is an interesting um, reference there, Christy. I, I like that. It's it, the, mm-hmm. it, it seems like it's at least one of a number of allusions or at least a For tradition sure. he seems to be borrowing from. Laura asks, why do the evil and bad weather come out of the East? One example from chapter nine, quote, and the weird wind was ever out of the East. I liked this question. I, I don't know the answer to this one. I like this question because I didn't know either because I read that, that, when I read that in the book, I thought, no, it should be coming from the West because the East is where Christ comes and the West is where, you know, wicked people come, you know, like C.S. Lewis names his bad guy in Paralandra in the space trilogy Weston because evil comes from the West, you know, as everybody knows. So well, this is a little bit, I mean, this is a little bit more mainstream. I mean, a lot of like right. early People Christian liturgies as part of the baptism, there is a turning, there is like you spit so the West and the turn West. to the East. Yeah. And turn to yeah. the East. Yeah. I've been on the devil. To this the day. Before. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's this, is the spitting still, is that part of mm-hmm. an Orthodox liturgy? Yeah. I didn't know that. It's a baptism. 
Yeah, when you get baptized, you have to spit toward the West. And people do it to varying degrees of, with with varying degrees of exuberance. It's true. For some, it's merely symbolic. For some, it's very literal. Yeah. And in some traditions, you you blow. Like, you kind of like... I've seen that. That's a good sound effect. Well done. Yeah. I, that wasn't a sound effect. I just, I did that all on my it own. It was just an effect. <laughs> yeah, it was just an effect. you did. A wind effect. That's, that's right. The wind was ever out of the East. So we don't have any thoughts on this. It's just, it's just maybe a creative choice he thought was interesting or is it like, yeah, come on, I, can, sure seems, I noticed it, it. I noticed the same thing and thought it didn't fit, but there's probably a reason that I just don't know. As sophisticated as he is with his symbols, you would think that this is a mm-hmm. deliberate choice of some sort. I just don't know what that choice signifies same um sarah wants to know do we know if this was originally published as a children's book i've seen it described online as such and i think if it is it would explain why some of the pov feels a little off at times especially during the discovery of the chick's bodies seeing it through lord russell's eyes is less dramatic but also less traumatic for the reader do you do you know either of you know this i don't know the answer to this but i didn't see anything when I was researching it before we started it about that, Heidi, do you? I've seen it described as a children's book and I forced my daughter to listen to it. So, um, and she ended up loving it, but yeah, it was, I, I have seen it described online as a children's book, but it also won the national book award for science fiction. Sci-fi. And it does not seem like science fiction to me. So I think it's one of those books that kind of defies genre, but I think that's a compelling theory for some of the, uh, displaced uh, point of view and that, that she was talking about. I think that that maybe works, but he also goes on the other hand, he goes really deep on some existential content and <laughs> that, that True. doesn't necessarily lend itself to children's literature. So I don't know. Tim. Megan says that I made an offhand comment about where the animals got their names. If this story takes place before there was a human presence, this really got me thinking, she says. What do you make of the lack of human presence? What would you make of the story if, in fact, this is a working farm with human farmers out and about somewhere, but uninvolved in this struggle against evil? Could this be playing around with the evils of industrialized agriculture? Obviously, that couldn't be the only thing the book was about, but I'm finding it haunting to imagine that there might be oblivious humans somewhere around, but the animals have to do all the dominion keeping themselves. Sorry, maybe this is more of a comment than a question. Okay, I think that the answer to... The question, might this be kind of an allusion to an industrialized society? I'm going to take a hard no on that. And the reason is that the book Animal Farm is so clearly about the, is number one, so clearly in the English-speaking world's imagination. It's a story about a farm that is populated both by animals and, at the beginning, if you remember Animal Farm, it's also populated by humans. And the humans are kind of like, they step aside or they're kind of forced out early in the book. And so much of that book is talking about, I think the allegory is about the rise of Soviet Russia um, in the kind of like, uh, not the vacuum of industrialized society, but in the kind of like competitive imbalance of an industrialized society. So the reason I say a hard no is I think that our author would... I think he's savvy enough to know to not repeat that frame. That frame has already been well occupied by George Orwell. So I think he's doing something different. And I just don't see enough evidences of um, the fallout of industrialization making its way into the book. There's hardly any mention of tools, of... um, yeah, the sorts of things that we associate with the pitfalls of industrialization. So I'm going to say, I don't, I don't think so. You forgot to mention Charlotte's Web, too. That, what do you mean? That's another book about, about farms with living with humans on them as well, interacting, and, but seemingly uninvolved with the... Well, I only brought up um, Animal Farm because it's so clearly, to me, is addressing like the effects of industrialization, like Mm -hmm. communism rises in the aftermath and the kind of imbalance societally of the wealth generated by the owners of the means of production. I can't believe I'm doing like a whole diagnosis of like 
like the rise of ca- of communism and like post-industrial capitalism. But that's what I'm doing. I'm already in there. And to have that's waited right. in so far, I can't wait back. You know. I, that's the you only know. reason. You know. You, you know. Everybody knows. As everyone knows, <laughs> the means of production are operated by the like gross capitalist. And we like, yeah. Um, I'm going to now attempt to pass the baton to Heidi in the hopes that she can fish me out of this pond. I agree. Heidi. Go on. You just mixed oh, things. Oh, no. <laughs> a very confusing yeah, metaphor. My friend, my friend sold me out. I just abandoned you. I like it. I like <laughs> that you said you were going to pass the baton to see if she could fish you out. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm mixing what metaphors is How is a baton going to help fish it's, you out of it? It's not at all. I guess she could reach out and you could grab on and then she could pull you. That's how bad it's him. gotten for me right now. That's how let's, bad it is. Let's talk totally, about Ebenezer. Yeah, go I ahead, do go agree ahead. with you. I think you're right. Okay, go ahead. Good transition, David. We double <laughs> no, really. yeah, It was more like a, the let's just David move on. Fish me out with the right over. Okay, there's two questions about two side characters or secondary characters. One's about John Wesley Weasel. One is about Ebenezer Rat. Uh, let's talk about John Wesley Weasel first. So Sarah says, can you elaborate on him? I know he's important to the story, but still have trouble understanding him as a character. Is he a fool who speaks the truth? Heidi, what do you think? Um, I think, so I've been thinking about this a lot. I even Googled it um, in hopes of clarifying my own kind of random thoughts on this. I think, I think I'm too hung up. My confession here is I think I'm, I think I've been too hung up on his name and trying to figure out the connection with John Wesley as a historical character in the church and a theological figure, trying to find some kind of like connection with like the Methodist church and this book and the Catholic church and the lauds and all this, but, and and maybe that's there and I'm just missing it. And somebody can explain that to me, but I kind of came up with, there's these, there's this three phase battle Right. We have the defeat of the basilisks with John Wesley Weasel at the helm. We have the defeat of Cockatrice with Chanticleer at the helm. And we have the defeat of Worm by Mundo Connie. And so we have this threefold battle. And in each battle becomes more, there's more at stake and there's a greater darkness that's represented in the villain. And a greater capacity for goodness represented in the hero. And that's the twist. It wasn't Chanticleer. It was Mundukani on all along. That's the twist, right? So the, but with John Wesley Weasel, what we have is the name of a great figure in the church defeating an army of essentially demons, right? Like these demonic presences. And so I think what we have is kind of a triumph of a splinter of the church over darkness Um, And I think that allegorically fits. Um, And so I like the fool idea, um, but I think it's more that there's these like, it's a lesser battle that has to be fought in order to get to the greater battle. Um, And I think there's something there that's worth exploring. And I'm not necessarily willing to make like a one-to-one correlation because the symbols symbolism, I think is a little more fluid than that. But I think if we, think about it in those terms, that it's a lesser battle that must be won in order to move on to the battle that has more at stake in order to get finally to the ultimate battle of the suffering servant defeating the the, the, the source of wickedness in the world. My takeaway from Heidi's answer is that the Methodists can't fight big battles. That's my take. My takeaway is that right? Oh man, I am in so much trouble right now. You know, shunned. I'm going to get you know? shunned. This <laughs> is. Fault. I really appreciate that. So, like five minutes ago, I kind of messed with you a little bit, and now you're just like hitting me <laughs> oh, with a bigger right. stick. And this like, is revenge. You're no. cockatrice right now. That's what's happening. <laughs> Who's worm? I am. Just so you know, I David am kind of. Young. <laughs> I have a closer link to. The, I'm not going to say to John Wesley's tradition than probably anybody in the room. So I just had to, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just had to kind of like stick my foot in it. I well, just let me in. just, based on what you just said, let me just clarify and say, I am not saying there's any kind of level in spiritual traditions that we're trying <laughs> to sort through. 
that is not at all what I meant. And that needs to be said right now. <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't hear that. I was I'm totally really kidding. Totally. Well, I'm not worried about you. I just don't want any, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, any of our listeners thinking, Heidi's making some kind of claim on my on on my church. I'm not. But I think it's very clear that we have a progression of battles. Um, and he happens to have a name that that is connected with a, a Christian tradition. And I so he might also be kind of getting at that an increasing unity in the church is going to defeat like a, a movement towards mere Christianity, maybe. So mm. I think there's lots of different options here on the allegory that isn't just about like John Wesley, the Methodist founder, uh, but has something more to do with the church as a whole. You guys know who John Wesley Harden is? No. Ooh, that name. Who's John Wesley Harden? He was a um, old West outlaw and uh, he was, you know, you know, this is you know. See, we all get our areas of but expertise. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What we have to, what we have determined is that my areas American lore. are like so lowbrow. No. It's about like an no, Western it's outlaw. Lore. It's exactly but, what Heidi said. Yeah. He, he, uh, he is supposed to have killed. He claimed he killed 42 men, but then it was possible. People claimed that he maybe like, made his stories bigger than they were and you couldn't, they could not be corroborated. And then when he was in prison, he actually like studied for the, he studied law and wrote an autobiography. And then he became Bob Dylan wrote a song about him. I think, um, I think it's Bob Dylan. Um, now I'm feeling like maybe I shouldn't have said that part, but anyway, he's a kind of a folk folk icon, um, and a gunfighter and all that. And so I was wondering if it's possible that, he was the, the the reference is more to him than it is to the religious figure. Oh, I like don't know, that. don't know the answer. But yeah, none of us know. It's we at least know. interesting, you know. You know, nope, we don't know. <laughs> um, but now I really want to know this Bob Dylan thing. It's gonna drive. It's gonna really bother me. If if I got that wrong, yes, 1967. No, the album was called John Wesley Harding after the Outlaw, although the name is okay. spelled differently. Okay, yeah, all right. I'm not crazy. Okay, no. I mean I am, but okay. Let's um, for different reasons. Yeah, exactly. What is the significance of laughter? Both good and evil characters laugh, and sometimes at the most inappropriate times. This question comes from Evan and Jamie Charles joint Facebook page. And then someone else said, yes, I, Megan said, I really didn't get it when the whole farmyard was laughing at Chanticleer in Mundo Connie's mouth. I didn't understand that either. I understood the effect that it had on Chanticleer, but I didn't understand what motivated the crew to be laughing. Did you have a thought on that, Heidi? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess my thought is really obvious that it was a ridiculous sight and and it elevated Mundo Kani's strength over Chanticleer's and Chanticleer that triggered his rage and pride and made him even more hard-hearted toward uh, his own vocation and toward his friend who is just trying to help. And I think that, but I like the question about laughter because I, I think that um, this is a book about really strong emotion. Like there's a lot of swings in emotion and a lot of really strong reactions on the part of the characters. And some of them are really unexpected. Uh, they take sudden turns, um, which I think is, much, although very, very different writers, I think it has a bit of a Flannery O'Connor feel to me, and that that they're so there that the emotions and the characters become almost caricatures, intentionally so, to elicit our kind of cathartic pity and fear throughout the story. So, and so I, I kind of took laughter as being like that, just a 
a release of emotion in kind of unexpected ways at different times throughout the story. There may be more to it than that, but that was what I took. I I read it very psychologically. See, I read it psychologically also, but I read it uh, uh, the psychology of the effects upon Chanticleer. Mm-hmm. I th- would think, like psychologically, what you're describing, seeing the kind of maybe absurdity of Chanticleer, our hero, being carried around in the mouth of this, you know, thought to be unintelligent dog, would have more resulted in tears more than laughter. You know, like oh, our fallen hero. Um, who has to kind of is degraded to even this point that that seemed to me to hmm. elicit more tears than laughter. Hmm. But maybe I'm just a romantic Heidi. Maybe that's no, what's going I on. just think this is this is a book that I, I think he's like it has all these medieval themes, but it has this very and and it's structured in terms of the storytelling a lot like a myth, like instead of um, or a folktale or a fable, even instead of there being like rising action and turning points, everything kind of is at the same um, peak level of emotion. Uh, and and story development, much like a myth or a Bible story, like once upon a time, and it just like launches into it. And there's no building yeah. action and turning point in a fairy tale, a folktale, a myth, right? It has a very different feel to it than uh, a traditional story or novel that has that like rising action, turning point, and then falling action. There's none of that in this story. It has that like kind of peak level of action, uh, like a Bible story or a myth throughout the entire novel, which gets a little bit tiring Mm. to read, you know, Mm. and you're kind of like trying to figure out what actually is at stake because we're so used to that rising action. This doesn't matter as much as that. This is moving toward this, that kind of thing. And we're trying to decipher it, but this novel isn't like that. And so it kind of moves from point to point, linear point to linear point to linear point at the same kind of emotional pitch throughout the whole story. And so that, and then, um, so there's that on one hand. And then on the other hand, it's totally a modern novel that mm-hmm. seems very postmodern in the sense that it's kind of trying to mess with the perceptions of the readers, um, and like trying to be unexpected and a little bit provocative. So even though it has these medieval themes and this kind of mythological structure, it also has this feel of a postmodern, I'm kind of trying to mess with you. And so as the right. reader, we kind of feel like we're trying to catch up all the time and figure out what the heck's going on. Why was that there? Yeah. Um, and the laughter, I think, is one of those things that as a really good question that I just don't have an answer to in the midst of all the other ways that Walter Wanger and Junior is kind of messing with us. Right. Yeah. yeah, Right. Right. Um, One of the questions I saw on the Facebook page that I thought was good. Do you see there's any valid comparison between Chanticleer and Melchizedek? So just a little bit of, for those who like Melchizedek, who is Melchizedek again? He is this kind of, um, he's a little bit of a shadowy figure that shows up most prominently or he's probably best known as showing up in the book of Hebrews, but he, if I'm not mistaken, um, shows up in Genesis and he is kind of the priest to, to Abraham before there's an established line of priests coming out of like the tribes of Israel. This predates the tribes of Israel. So the question is, is there some sort of valid comparison between Chanticleer and Melchizedek? And I, I don't know because there's not, I I just don't see it. I actually don't, I'm not going to say I don't know. I don't think there is because I think the thing that's really remarkable about Melchizedek is that he's not part of a lineage. He's kind of a foreshadowing of Christ because He's unique. He's kind of sui generis. And I, so maybe Chanticleer kind of fits that, but I, I just don't see it. I think there'd be a stronger emphasis on lineage within the book. And we don't see much of anything about that in the book. Right. I, I agree with that. I think where the question has a lot of merit is the idea of looking for those priestly overtones. We see that really clearly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's clearly an uh, 
it's very clear that he is drawing threads between these biblical archetypes, these biblical symbols, um, and the story. And it's, I mean, it's glaringly clear that Chanticleer fulfills a priestly role Mm -hmm. as well as a kingly role and as well as a prophetic role. And so in that sense, I think the question of Melchizedek is a natural extension of looking at the priestly role in Chanticleer's Chanticleer's character. The next question has got to be, well, who's like an archetypal priest in scripture? Maybe he's connected with him and Melchizedek is the the archetypal priest. Um, I think that Chanticleer is a little too flawed and we don't have the emphasis on the lineage, as you're saying, for him to be a clear one-to-one correlation with Melchizedek. But I think that the question about the priestly office is important and worth exploring. Yeah. Another question uh, from Anthony Dodgers. And this is a little bit long one. I'm going to read the whole thing, Heidi. Can you discuss a little more how you take Chanticleer's anger and bitterness at God? We see this in his mourning, the death of his chicks, and then also in his despair at the end in the face of worm. The book captures the reality of evil in a visceral way. But what does it say about our response to evil and to God who allows it? We might think of Job in his complaints, but in the end, God shows up, puts Job in his place. Um, Chanticleer, meanwhile, gets very angry uh, at God and at the dun cow, which is understandable. But what's the book telling us to do with such feelings? Hmm. Right. Well, I think a good book doesn't tell us what to do with feelings. It just explores them. And I think that's here. Um, I... There's so many dark nights of the soul for Chanticleer that are explored in this book. And that's my favorite part of the story by, by a long, by a mile. I love those. Um, And, but one of the things I love about them is the permission to have dark nights of the soul. Um, And I think if that's what you're getting at, Anthony, I think that that is what the story is getting at. Like the, the dark night of the soul is inevitable. The existential crisis is connected to a spiritual crisis in the life of every human and or personified rooster. Um, and that that journey through the valley of the shadow of death is tied to our development as uh, spiritually and tied with our ability to rise to the occasion and be a hero. I think that's what I really love about this book is how much Chanticleer suffers in his interior life um, on his journey to his external heroism. And so I think I'm I'm not necessarily inclined to draw a moral out of the story um, as much as I am to just applaud the courage of an author who's willing to make that connection. I'm with you, Heidi. I mean, I think I'm a little bit more tempted to kind of draw a moral from the story because I think it's written in such a way that it's meant to be a bit of moral instruction. But frankly, I mean, I think that's a similarity that it has with Lord of the Rings. I think if you get to the end of the Lord of the Rings and you're not inspired and moved to kind of like fight against a great darkness, then I think you've missed the Lord of the Rings. I think it's really meant in some ways to instruct. This book is written in a similar fashion, um, but it, but, but the what moral we are to take away from it for me is a little bit more murky. The end. You know what I mean? You know? You know what I mean? You know? David, welcome back. Are you, you're doing Anthony Dodger's question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just Anthony did you Dodger's see the, question. It's a great question. Did you see the conversation underneath it about um, how he is a patron for the Bookening podcast, uh, who, are, who are friends of ours, and how he gets called the, what is it called? The uh, Artful Dodger, the Artful Anthony Dodgers. Nice. <laughs> That's and good. So then he, he brought something up about Thank you, comparing Dickens. lit podcasts with different approaches. Um, it's, uh, cause apparently they just did unplanned. They just did the book of the dun cow as well. Oh, really? So, uh, I don't, I don't remember how many episodes they're doing, but the interest, we should, we should have, uh, talked to them about doing like a yeah, crossover or something. We should talk. Um, we have 
10, 15 minutes left here. Um, do either of you have a question particularly that you wanted to make sure we get to given the amount of time we have left? Um, Heidi, was there No, not necessarily. There was, David, you drew attention to this question about circles from mm-hmm. Mora that I liked. Or I'll, I'll read mm-hmm. it. It says, what's the significance of circles? Example, Beryl draws a circle around the chicks, which they step over. A circle is drawn around the dead chicks and Beryl. The rue is spread in a closed circle around the mother's children before the battle begins. And the perfect circle of the wall is built around the animal's camp. Um, I really like this question because circles are, you know, significant in medieval cosmology. <laughs> um, and uh, except, so except in the case of circle, the world's shit. Well, I don't know what you mean because you it mean, is David? in the case of the world's shape. Go on. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the medievals believe that that the universe, the cosmos, was circular, uh, and and we are that that the Earth was at the center of overlapping circles uh, that represented different realms of authority to the heavenly beings, um, with of course God uh, in the all-encompassing circle at the outside. That becomes a bit more complicated because Dante kind of uses that and then changes it a bit to put God in the center. And it's really kind of cool what they did with circles, really complex um, and really fun to study if you're into that, which everybody is, as we now have covered, you know. So I make my students memorize the circles of medieval cosmology in my classes. Um, So the circle is kind of a protected area of authority. So if you put yourself outside of a circle, like the chicks did, you're removing yourself from the authority and the order that's represented within that circle. It's considered a pretty profound act of rebellion. And the circle is uh, a place of safety and protection and holiness. There's no beginning, there's no end, it's infinite. So it has this picture of infinity to it. and, um, and also circularity and rhythms, which is really important to the medieval mind. They did not see life as a progressive journey moving forward. They saw life as a circular experience when you revisit the same temptations, the same joys, the same opportunities, the same sufferings over and over again on your journeys to the kingdom. And you have then a chance to redeem it every time you revisit it. Um, this makes a lot of sense considering how um, cyclical the medieval life was. It was so tied to the land and to, you know, the harvest and the seasons and um, the circles of authority with kingships rising and falling and all that kind of thing. And so it makes a lot of sense that they saw life in these cycles. Um, And so I think circles are definitely significant as areas of authority and protection and kind of a vision uh, or a window into infinity in the novel. Tim? I can't do better than that. I can't do better than that. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Thanks. I liked the question a lot. I think it's, you know, there's just so many close readers out there who are reading this novel really closely and saying, this has got to mean yeah. something. What is it? And we obviously can't answer all those questions. Speaking um, of it's that, it's fun to try. This might be something that we have to talk about off the air, but is it the last two books that we've done, um, The Book of the Dun Cow and, oh, what was the one I forget just before that? Oh, yeah, All the Pretty Horses. It seems like there has been more Q&A posts around those two books than I can remember at previous books. And that can either mean, wow, we really have um, motivated listeners around these two books, or it can mean the you size of really the listenership is really... You guys are really confusing and I have really, so many questions. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, it could mean that also. Or it could just mean like there's a lot more listeners that are on the Facebook page now. Well, it is, is growing. really fun to see that. The, the growth and the, the depth of an insight of the question. So too. James asks, we've got about seven minutes left probably. Why do you think the title of this book is the book of the Dun Cow? Now, Heidi, you've mentioned that there was something called the book of the Dun Cow or a legend called that. So um, is, do you want to go into that further? Just kind of clarify why you think he then adapted that for this setting? Yeah, I think it's because, and I, I think I said this even earlier today on this podcast, I think the book of the Duncow refers to the spiritual and existential crises of the characters. I think he's trying to point to the fact that that the plot 
is a um, a means to a, a means through which he intends for his readers oh, yeah. to engage in that liminal space between heaven and earth where the dun cow dwells. This book is like an invitation to that. Um, and and so I, I think that even though Chanticleer is the main character, the dun cow is the uh, is is the one who kind of ties the threads together as being the source of comfort and wisdom. Um, and, and I'll use a phrase from Sheldon Van Auken. It, she she represents like a severe mercy, right? And that the goal is not always just comfort, but salvation and and a, and a protection of the land. The point is to keep worm out. Right, not to feel better about everything, and Chanticleer loses that towards the end and has to be reprimanded pretty severely. And the Dun Cow is hard on him in that in that time. There's a lot of silence, and um, it's very clear she doesn't represent God um, because God is God in the story, which I like a lot. Um, but she does represent spiritual intervention. And it's done in such a mysterious kind of way throughout throughout the novel that that I think that the title is intending to kind of draw us to that, to see that as the point, the mysteries of the spiritual mm-hmm. life. Okay, let's do this, this last question here. Uh, which animal do you identify most with? This comes from Michelle. So which animal do you identify most with? Which animal do you aspire most to be? Tim, what do you think about this one? It's... It's really tough. I think I like John Wesley Weasel. The That's most. who you identify most with? I think I identify most with John Wesley Weasel. His skill at hand-to-hand combat in particular. Yeah, I just think it's something that's clearly a real resemblance yeah. to me. My martial arts yeah. training. Yeah. Um, your ability to stand your ground. The heroic virtues. The heroic virtues, This the kind of like... Um, but the longing for the domestic life. I think this fits. I like it. <laughs> the occasional mode, the occasional berserker mode that John Wesley Weasel went into during no, the living of under the living, living no underground. No. Go on, Heidi. Let's hear it, Heidi. <laughs> well, who do you aspire to um, be? Yay, yay, yay. I don't know the answer to that. Ask Heidi who she most identifies okay. with, and maybe by then I'll know who I most. Go ahead, Heidi. to be. I should, I should aspire to be Mundo Kani, but I don't. And I think that was one of the takeaways that I had for this book. Like he's the hero. He's the one who, who blinds and imprisons Worm. And I don't want to be like that. And that I think is like a takeaway for me. I should aspire to be more like Mundo Kani. Um, and then I should probably, and I guess Pertolote would aspire. She's like a very, I, I really like her and I'm a, I'm a woman. She's a great wife, whatever. I'm definitely most like Chanticleer. Like a, a calling this, the hours of the day. Well, I guess less, less in terms of leadership role or even ability, but more in terms of the, uh, the hard swing between the dark night of the soul and mm. the ability to engage in the fight, the world's fight. Right. Like, Sometimes I am out there mm. fighting the battle, and sometimes I'm sitting and whining about where is God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perfect, Chanticleer. That's, Perfect. Yeah, I think. I that's do think, true. David. I, th- I like what you said about the Mundo Kani aspiration thing. Although it does raise the question: What do we mean when we ask which animal do you aspire most to be? Because aren't you just saying when you say that your answer was that you aspire to be? You're saying that you don't aspire, but you want to aspire to him is just the same thing as saying, I want to, I aspire to be him. I aspire for yeah, it's just right. that in my, right. my yeah. certain moments, I don't want to be him. But when I really think about what I, I want to be, think, that's what I want to be. Right. I always think about Tim with this one when we were talking about Anne of Green Gables and we were saying, do you want to be divinely beautiful, dazzlingly clever, oh, angelically yeah. good? And I was like, totally divinely beautiful, 100%. I don't care about any of those other ones. And David's like, I want to be dazzlingly clever. And then Tim, with his pure heart, is like, I definitely should want to be angelically good. And that's the one I do actually want. <laughs> I do actually want it. And I, I think like 
the energy that I had behind wanting that is because I know I'm so far from that, right? You can want it with a beer heart when you know how far away you are. Yeah, it's like, it. But it's all about how you think about the question. Like yeah, what's yeah, your yeah, mindset yeah. Right. when you're thinking about thinking about that question? Um, yeah, we are about at. So anyway, David, what's your, what? Well, you didn't give your answer. Uh, I think, you know, like it's a tough question. Cause you might look at me and like the way you guys would look at me and say, no, you're definitely more like such and such because you're my friends and we talk about Enneagram stuff. Then you'd probably maybe, maybe judge me differently. Um, but I think the character that when I'm reading it, I felt the most kinship with probably was John Wesley Weasel too. Um, Mm. But there's something also very, um, pardon the term, very human about Mundo Kani, who for most of it is sort of a bummer, (laughs) but then he does the heroic thing. And so there's, I think you, I think you can identify with him for 90% of the book and then aspire to be the last 10% of him. There you go. That's so great. I think that's right. probably, well, well, I also that's great. did clever. Very feel clever. the same way. I sort of feel the same Dazzling. way. Dazzlingly clever. Guys, stop. <laughs> 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 I probably also feel the same way about John Wesley Harding. No, John Wesley Weasel. Um, hmm. I, don't, I don't want to be a Western gunfighter who was as aspired to take more lives. Um but then also take the bar exam or whatever that was in 1895. We are about out of time. So I just want to remind people that the next book is going to be a gather. Shoot. Where, where did that page go? Yeah. Yeah. But I was looking for my schedule. I had the schedule up and now it's gone. Uh A gathering of old men by Ernest Gaines. And we're going to do the first 57 pages. That's going to be the, the first batch of pages that we're going to discuss. If you want to see that the, the whole schedule for that book, it's on the Facebook page, but it's also at closereads.substack.com where we post our and, and originate our newsletter from where we share schedules and updates and things like that. Uh, we are also well into, well, not well into, but we are into Anna Karenina. So we're going to be well into part one of that next week so the first episode where we kind of introduced it and talked about the first 24 pages or so that's already up uh we have posted the first episode of the taming of the shrew by the time this episode goes live both the first two episodes of that should be up tim do you want to give a quick 30 seconds on what's going on 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 that show we that um play taming of the shrew is one of Shakespeare's most controversial because uh, it has often been the charge of misogyny has often been leveled against that. We have two guests, Matt Bianco and Nora Ankrum, and they, one loves the show, one loves the play, and one is a little bit dubious about that play. And I invited each of them on both because they're very eloquent and well and very knowledgeable about Shakespeare and the play, but also because they have opposing points of view in which we um, warmly and delicately consider each of their views. And it, I think it went really well. The point counterpoint worked really well, I think for that play. That's yeah, that's been really fun. And Matt Bianca was talking to me about it and he was saying, Nora's the real deal. I, I believe was the phrase that he used. Yeah. Nora's the real deal. She, she knows her Shakespeare really well. She's executive director of a theater in West Virginia yeah, she's very, very capable as a foil to Matt Bianco. <laughs> and the world needs more foils to Matt Bianco. We all know that. Right. You know. Right. Uh, and then, of course, we also have Withy Wendell, which is our kids' show. Season one is available. Season two is launching October 8th. So we've got a whole bunch of great people lined up for that. We're recording interviews now. And then in around the same time, maybe a few days after that, we're launching our new podcast, which is called Bibliography, where I talk to interesting people about the books that they love. We've got a lot of pretty big authors. We're starting with two North Carolina authors just because we're a North Carolina bookstore that this, that this uh, little studio is based out of. So we're going to start there. And then we've got, I think I've recorded 10 interviews with like a bunch of big, like New York times bestsellers as well as indie writers. And it's really fun. If you want to add more books to your reading list or just hear people nerd out about books and talk about things they love, then this is a podcast for you. So in the meantime, Heidi has to go pick up her kid from school. So we need to end this. That's right. Heidi, any final thoughts on the book of the Dun Cow? 
before we go? No, I've said all the thoughts. I've loved this book. Thanks for thanks for picking it. Tim, you want to say anything else before we go? I'm good. Counterpoint. <laughs> I'm good. No counterpoint. No counterpoint. <laughs> all right. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Thank you.